Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.purevoice.com forward slash VVC. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Alexion Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated. Welcome to this Pure Voice activity on paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Professors Austin Kulasekaraj and Alexander Root. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, my name is Austin Kulasekaraj. I'm a consultant hematologist based at King's College Hospital in London. Today, I have the pleasure in taking you through monitoring strategies for patients with PNH especially those on C5 inhibitors, i.e. ecluzumab and rabluzumab. I hope during this next 10 to 12 minutes, you'll be able to appreciate the background pathophysiology of PNH, the need for terminal complement inhibition, the approved use of ecluzumab and rabluzumab, and more importantly, since it's a lifelong treatment, strategies to monitor this group of patients over a period of time predominantly due to the fluctuations in their underlying bone marrow failure, but also due to some residual hemolysis, be it intravascular or due to extravascular hemolysis, and also subtle things like iron overload, folate deficiency, hypersplenism, and also hemat other hematinic deficiency as well. We all know that uh, PNH is a rare disease with incidence being less than one per million, but due to the advances in the treatment landscape, the prevalence of the disease is around 13 to 14 per million. And PNH is traditionally characterized by this triad of hemolysis, which is predominantly intravascular and complement mediated. There is a chronic hemolysis, but there is also be paroxysms associated with it. These patients do have significant risk of thromboembolism, mostly in the venous circulation, but also in arterial circulation. They do get deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism, but they do have a propensity, which nobody knows why, to develop thrombosis in intra-abdominal vasculature, a cerebral venous circulation as well. And one of the things which underpins the pathophysiology of the disease is the underlying bone marrow failure or dysfunction either manifesting predominantly as aplastic anemia, but very rarely as myelodysplastic syndrome. Thereby, sometimes people divide this into hemolytic, thrombotic, or an AAPNH overlap syndrome. So what happens in PNH? We know we produce millions and millions of red cells per, uh, per second, and all the hemopoietic stem cells and the derivatives from the hemopoietic stem cells will have complement regulatory proteins on the surface of the cell. Here it's depicted as CD55 and CD59 on the surface of the red cell. And complement is one part of the immune system, which is always active at a low level. But in the context of PNH, due to acquired somatic mutation in the PIGA gene, the GPA anchors are deficient, and the complement regulatory proteins, which are supposed to be anchored to the GPA proteins, are lacking but the complement is still there, active. And this complement activation leads on to hemolysis of this PNH red cells, which do not have the complement regulatory proteins and lead on to anemia and more complications due to the release of free hemoglobin, 
associated with smooth muscle dystonia manifesting as dysphagia, abdominal pain, erectile dysfunction and the dreaded complication of thrombosis which is the main reason for mortality in this group of patients. How do we treat this disease? This was a serendipitous discovery. Leoclizumab has been shown to uh, block the C5 so that the terminal complement cascade is more or less blocked off because of its ability to bind to C5 and ability to keep the proximal functions of the complement intact so that the opsonization and the other immune complex mediated clearance is not impaired. The Ravlizumab has been shown to be a similar efficacious in controlling the terminal complement activation. Based on the clinical trial data and real life data of Ecluzumab over the last 20 years, this has been shown to have a significant benefit in reducing and improving some of the complications related to complement activation and intravascular hemolysis, namely transfusions, thrombosis, and also preventing the renal complications. So why do we need to monitor these group of patients if the treatment is so effective in controlling the intravascular hemolysis? The main reason is because of complications which can happen during the course of the patient's disease because this treatment, as I said, is not a curative treatment, but it's a treatment which, uh, which controls the disease. But the underlying bone marrow failure can be stable or fluctuant, so that needs to be carefully monitored and strategies need to be put in place to see how we can manage this when a patient gets complications related to the underlying bone marrow failure. It is rare, but few group of patients do get clonal remission with PNH that they lose their PNH clone over a period of time. So that needs to be monitored. An underlying hematinic deficiency or iron deficiency or even iron overload because these patients have had significant uh, uh, transfusions in the past needs to be managed as well. So what happens when you start a patient on C5 inhibitor therapy? How do we know that the drug is working? LDH is one of the predominant measures we use to look at intravascular hemolysis. So when an LDH level is significantly reduced uh, within a few weeks of starting treatment, the patient's intravascular hemolysis is well controlled. And we know that from clinical trial data with uh, Ecluzumab, this is looking at the Triumph data, which was the placebo controlled, where patients were allowed to switch to Ecluzumab over a period after 24 weeks showing that the LDH level significantly reduced. And not only that, over a period of years, this LDH level continued to remain low. Most patients, if not all patients, will have a reduction of LDH to less than one and a half times the upper limit of normal, as shown in subsequent trials and real life data. There's only a very rare cause of C5 polymorphism, which stops Eclusimab and also Ravlizumab from binding to the C5 thereby uh, uh, LDH levels would not change in that scenario. And we know in the 301 trial of uh, Ravlizumab that the LDH levels were significantly reduced with LDH in patients who started off with Ravlizumab and when the patients on Ecluzumab switched over to Ravlizumab, the maintenance in the LDH was persistent. So once we make sure that the LDH level is less than one and a half times the upper limit of normal, you would continue therapy. But if there are fluctuations in the LDH levels, 
then you would still continue to monitor and continue the therapy, but you will try to find out why these patients have fluctuations in LDH. Then one of the other measures which if available people will do is look at CH50, which is a measure of complement inhibition. So the level should be less than 10 or zero in patients who have very good control. And then we need to find out why these patients have uh, uh, elevated CH50 levels. One of the phenomena which we saw quite early on during the trials of eclizumab was this phenomenon called pharmacokinetic breakthrough hemolysis, where due to insufficient drug uh, levels, there would be activation of complement and hemolysis during day 12, day 13, day 14, which will manifest as dark urine and high LDH levels and low drug levels, which was elegantly shown in the study, looking at comparison between LDH CH50, hemoglobin levels, and the eclizumab uh, drug levels indicating there are a group of patients who, who can get pharmacokinetic breakthrough hemolysis due to inadequate drug on board. But this has been largely overcome by rabulizumab where no cases of breakthrough hemolysis is, is seen due to suboptimal inhibition. This is here measured by free C5 level while you have significant fluctuations of C5 in a proportion of patients on eclizumab, you do not see this with rabulizumab, thereby indicating rabulizumab prevents pharmacokinetic breakthrough. Additionally, there are other types of breakthrough hemolysis. One is pharmacodynamic, and this is due to complement activating condition despite adequate amounts of drug. And this unfortunately is being looked at different angles to see how we can overcome this, but giving extra doses of drug is highly unlikely to overcome this. Another phenomenon which is seen in the context of C5 inhibition is extravascular hemolysis due to C3D deposition on the PNH red cells, which needs to be cleared by the reticular endothelial system. Once you have overcome this breakthrough hemolysis, either due to pharmacokinetic or pharmacodynamic, then you would try to look at what the hemoglobin level is. If the hemoglobin level is normal or uh, 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 not needing blood transfusion, but they do not have uh, symptomatic anemia, you would continue therapy. But there are a group of patients who will continue to have some symptomatic anemia and we will need to find out why that is. And as indicated before, one of the major reasons is to rule out an underlying bone marrow failure because this can uh, happen over a period of time. And there are various other reasons why these patients could have uh, an elevated reticulocyte count in the context of anemia due to hypersplenism, presence of antibodies, extravascular hemolysis, and we need to ascertain each individual cause and treat it as well. If the reticulocyte count is low, this could be due to underlying marrow failure, folate deficiency or EPO deficiency, or even due to iron overload, and we need to go ahead and correct these causes as well. A proportion of patients still remain anemic despite very good control of terminal complement inhibition and control of intravascular hemolysis. This potentially could be due to extravascular hemolysis and various strategies needs to be done, including potential consideration of uh, novel agents or broad C3 or uh, factor blockers like factor B or factor D inhibitors in the context of proximal complement inhibition to see whether this would overcome the extravascular hemolysis. In conclusion, eclizumab and rabulizumab currently are the standard of care in patients with PNH. There are various reasons for residual anemia in the context of PNH. 
predominantly due to bone marrow failure or dysfunction, but also residual intravascular hemolysis or possibly due to the emergence of C3-mediated extravascular hemolysis. And we need to carefully monitor these parameters to see whether these patients could be safely managed. So given the rarity of the PNH and the complexity of monitoring of these group of patients and the need for long-term or lifelong treatment, we need to have adaptive monitoring strategies to monitor these group of patients. Thank you. Hello, this is Alexander Röth from the University Hospital Essen, Department of Hematology, Essen, Germany. Welcome to the second presentation titled Paroxysmal Nocturnal Hemoglobinuria and Aplastic Anemia, Therapeutic Management of a Dual Diagnosis. In this presentation, we will review disease burden of PNHAA, management strategies for patients with dual diagnosis, specific considerations and challenges when treating and monitoring patients with PNHAA, a case example for managing patients who are receiving complement inhibitor and immunosuppressive therapy. PNH is a rare form of acquired hemolytic anemia that is closely related to immune-mediated bone marrow failure. Laboratory diagnosis of PNH is based on flow cytometry, characterization of the size and phenotype of GPI-deficient cells or PNH clones. Large PNH clones are associated with classical hemolytic PNH, while smaller clones are associated typically with aplastic anemia or any kind of cytopenias. 70 to 88% of patients with PNH are estimated to have aplastic anemia, suggesting significant burden of disease. In this slide, you see the overview of bone marrow failures. PNH and aplastic anemia are quite close and correlate with each other. Typically, patients with aplastic anemia have um, a frequency of PNH clones, and also PNH patients have an underlying aplastic anemia. Patients with aplastic anemia develop PNH clones over time, up to 20%. PNH patients can develop aplastic anemia also around 20%. There's also rare risk of developing NDS or AML. This slide summarizes the bone marrow failure in GPI-deficient cells. There is a certain insult to the bone marrow with the mutation of PKA genes gives the PKA-mutated cells uh, a survival benefit, leading to aplastic anemia, PNH, or MDS. In aplastic anemia and PNH, the cumulative incidence of clinical PNH after immunosuppressive therapy um, is around uh, 13%. Other clonal disorders in the setting of aplastic anemia are with around 32%. These are the steps in the expansion of the PNH clone. So in normal hemopathic cells, there's a mutation leading to deficiency of the GPI anchor. But the mutation alone is not enough. In addition, there's an immunological attack leading to a selection of the PNH phenotype and further expansion. Furthermore, we think there's clonal um, evolution with a certain growth advantage leading to the expansion of the cells leading to PNH. Patients who present with PNHAA compared with patients with classical PNH typically have a lower percentage of PNH cells. PNH clones are below 10% and do not typically require clinical intervention. Close monitoring of these patients is strongly recommended due to the possibility of clone expansion, development of classical clinical PNH, and the risk for thrombosis. Patients with small PNH clones, including PNHAA, do not have to be treated for PNH unless there are symptoms of hemolytic anemia or hemolysis. Treatment in these patients should target the underlying bone marrow failure disorder rather than the asymptomatic PNH clone. 
Just recently, there was this nice overview in Figure summarizing the role of the PNH clone, size, and clinical presentation. Patients with aplastic anemia typically have for high frequency small PNH clones, which was necessary for diagnosing patients with any kind of cytopenias to identify the underlying aplastic anemia, which is an immune-mediated disease. With the expansion of the PNH clone, patients get symptomatic. Typically, with a PNH clone greater than 50%, the patients develop significant hemolysis, anemia, and further complications like thrombosis, abdominal pain, hemoglobinuria, or erectile dysfunction. For classical PNH, asymptomatic or mild, watchful waiting is justified. You might consider putting patients on prophylactic anticoagulations depending on the lifestyle and the possibilities. For classical PNH with symptoms, clearly C5 inhibitor like eculizumab and ravulizumab are indicated. Patients with PNH AA, depending on the severity of the underlying bone marrow failure and the aplastic anemia, should be either transplanted or treated with immunosuppressive therapy, typically ADG, CSA, and L-Trombopac. For patients with PNHAA, intervention should be directed at treating the underlying bone marrow failure with careful monitoring of the PNH clone over time using high-sensitive flow cytometry. Patient age and availability of suitable HLA-matched sibling donors will determine the use of BMT versus immunosuppressive therapy. So what are the challenges and considerations in managing PNHAA? PNH is a rare disease characterized by heterogeneous clinical presentation. A limited number of treaters are familiar with this condition. Patients can present with different symptoms or combinations of symptoms which vary in severity over time. The nonspecific nature of symptoms can lead to delay in diagnosis and treatment. Treatment of PNH AA follows the recommendations and guidelines of patients with AA for SAA and non-severe AA. Recommendations for treatment vary depending on symptomatic presentations and or severity of the disease, as well as clonal expansion of PNH. Patients with symptomatic PNH AA are likely to be on a C5 inhibitor and concomitant immunosuppressive therapy. What are the recommendations? The focus treatment goals on underlying bone marrow failure with careful monitoring of the PNH clone using flow cytometry. Patients with severe AA should be managed with either allogenic bone marrow transplant or immunosuppressive therapy. How about the monitoring? Pathological clones in PNHA are initially be of different size. Gradual growth of the PNH clone can occur over time. This may accompany uh, signs of intravascular hemolysis and transformations into classical hemolytic PNH. C5 inhibitors therapy helps to reduce intravascular hemolysis in PNH, but does not prevent extravascular hemolysis and does not treat bone marrow failure. This is a case presentation of a classical PNH patient. First, he was diagnosed because of reduced fitness, increased paleness, fatigue, and tendency for infections. Hemoglobin was 6 gram per deciliter, leukocytes 2.4 per nanoliter, neutrophils um, uh, 360 per microliter, thrombocytes 17 per nanoliter, and reticocytes 20 per nanoliter. The bone marrow diagnostics gave severe hypoplasia, and other underlying bone marrow failures like Fanconi anemia were ruled out. So there was this diagnosis of severe aplastic anemia at the age of 15. And the patient was started on immunosuppressive therapy due to the lack of HLA-matched sibling donor. The result was a good partial remission with continued CSA treatment. During the course of the disease, all of a sudden the LDH levels rose to around 4,000 units per liter with a significant anemia. Blood test was negative, reticulocytes were clearly elevated, 
with an RPI of 4.1. There were severe symptoms of anemia with a hemoglobin below of 10 gram per deciliter, leading to regular transfusions of 2 to 4 units every 4 weeks. The patient's urine presented with a hemoglobinuria all in a sudden after infection. The patient was diagnosed with PNH clone. At the time, it was actually a ham test, which was positive and a positive sucrose test. However, this testing is obsolete nowadays. And later on, we did flow cytometry on the patients, revealing a PNH clone size of around 100%, giving the diagnosis of clinical proximal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. There were no documented history of thromboembolic events. Patients was oral supplemented folic acid and iron. There were recurrent hemolytic due to bacterial infections with hemoglobinuria treated with steroids at the time. With the availability of a complement inhibitor in 2007, patient was vaccinated with a tetravalent conjugate vaccine and started on eculizumab. The treatment was well tolerated with no side effects. The LDH was well controlled on the terminal complement inhibitor eculizumab and the patients uh, almost needed no further blood transfusions during the course of the disease. PNH presents a complex interplay between cell intrinsic changes due to big A loss and the external factors that together produce PNH clonal expansion in patients. PNH is a clonal disease whose development is fostered by a autoimmune bone marrow environment. Many PNH patients can now readily receive effective therapy to prevent complement-mediated intravascular hemolysis with the C5 inhibitor therapy. Once treated, regular follow-up for monitoring clone expansion and evolution, as well as for management of the underlying condition is important. Thank you very much for your attention. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.